This week I'm joined by Professor Paul Bishop, who is the author of multiple books on the work of Carl Jung and Friedrich Nietzsche, alongside other texts on analytical psychology and German thought. He is also the author of Ludwig Klager's and the Philosophy of Life, a Vitalist Toolkit, one of the few English texts on the philosophy of Ludwig Klager's, who we'll be talking about today. I'd also like to thank David Beth and Theion Publishing for making this interview possible. I would like to thank all my patrons for making all this work possible, and if you'd like to join the Hermetics community, or support Hermetics in any way, please find our Discord, Patreon, merchandise, and donation links in the description below. Enjoy. Hey, so, Paul Bishop, uh, thanks for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Just before we begin here with the Hermetics question, just for those who aren't familiar with you, you have quite a diverse background with books on Klagers, who we're speaking about today, uh, the work of Ludwig Klagers, uh, but you also have books on Jung and Nietzsche and a few other thinkers. So for those who aren't familiar with you, uh, a little bit about your background and your, you know, what's your um, trajectory? What it is, what is it that you're you're looking for? Well, I I suspect my trajectory is probably downward, but um, but but I describe I describe what I'm what I'm doing as um, if if it's German, I do it. Uh, so so anything that's German or Austrian or Swiss that that fits into that into that category. Um, and I suppose I also have a bit of a bit of a soft spot uh, for the underdog as well, and um, and and for thinkers that are moved to the side or overlooked or, or misunderstood. Or, or misrepresented, and so I, I, I got going really by first of all looking at uh, looking at Jung, and um, uh, Jung has kept on fascinating me. And um, Clark is my way of trying to get away from Jung a little bit. Uh, somebody who's even more unpopular than <laughs> Jung. Do you consider Jung unpopular currently? Well, I think he's within the arts and humanities. I think I think he's pretty much he's pretty much a fringe figure as far as that's concerned. Doesn't go down well, I think, in the seminar room if you if you quote too much Jung. And and as far as social sciences are concerned, um, then you know he's completely absent from psychology courses. Um, you know Freud, Jung, and so on. People just don't want to do that. Um, I, but that's not to say that there isn't good work that's gone on in the arts and humanities on Jung, uh, or equally in the social sciences as as well. But I think I described these these figures as undeservedly marginalized and um you know they're, they're doing their best to hang in there but they're having a difficult time okay so that does lead me to the hermetics question perhaps Jung will come back in because there is a fairly clear connection between between him and Clark as I, I can see at least but uh the hermetics question so you can place three thinkers living or dead into a room and listen on in the conversation who do you pick but as obviously as we're talking about Ludwig Klagers we uh, we can take him as sort of a given if you like if, if, uh, well, okay. if you actually would want to meet Klagers, that is. I can't imagine it would be perhaps too enjoyable. Well, that's that that, that that's an interesting question. Um, uh, he was quite popular as a speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does seem to have been a kind of charismatic personality. And um, I don't know, some of the pictures that you look at him, sometimes he's a bit wild-eyed. Uh, but sometimes also he's well, he, he's looking sort of quite well spruced up and dandy-like. Um, so I kind of imagine one would have a fun time with him. Um, but sticking to the three, because um, why turn it into a Jungian quaternity? I, I think the thing, I think the three I would go for would be Plato, Nietzsche, and Heidegger. Okay. Well, my instant thought there would be that Heidegger would sort of have Plato against the wall for the uh, the Socratic turn for Heidegger was the incorrect turn. So, would that? Would you think they'd get on? I know, I know. My understanding is that Heidegger was a classics sort of scholar of sorts. So, yeah, it, it's hard to say at what point it would all break out into fisticuff. <laughs> but I, I think it would be interesting. For one thing, one could see how well Nietzsche and Heidegger actually spoke ancient Greek. That would be that would be an interesting kind <laughs> of test. It would also be, I think, interesting to. I mean, they'd all have a you know a lot to say about each other, and Nietzsche could have his go at Plato and blame him for everything, and um, and Heidegger to say to Nietzsche, "Well, you haven't really got out of metaphysics, even though you think you have," and and so on. Um, and then and then Plato could put them both right, or they Nietzsche and Heidegger would just turn on each other. I don't know, but I think I think there'd be an awful lot to talk about, and in a way, it kind of maps out, I suppose, the kind of terrain in which Klager's um, could be situated, which is, you know, the length and breadth, not just of the German, but of the overall Western intellectual tradition. Um, and, and perhaps they represent, um, you know, two poles there, the Platonic and the Anti-Platonic, the, the Platonic, the Absolute, and the Existential, 
and the relativists, and I think that would be a, a, a great debate would be had. And and they might have a nice symposium and drink red wine and have a good time. Who knows? Most definitely, most definitely. When people have picked Nietzsche before, though, I've always I've always thought, you know, what what era, what era of Nietzsche are we talking? I think that changed a lot. If it's young or old, Nietzsche is huge. If it's Nietzsche when he's influenced by Wagner, more influenced by directly by Wagner, then I think we'd have a a different conversation altogether. I, I think I think that's right. But of course, if it's the last 10 years of Nietzsche's life, you wouldn't be having a conversation with him at all. Not that you understood. <laughs> no. No. But well, perhaps Clarkers would. I mean, there is the... I think I've at least had heard a few theories that, you know, Nietzsche's horrible end wasn't so much that he was mad, but he'd uh, reached a, let's say, a mental state that you wouldn't understand unless you also spoke that language, which... That, that that's a very nice way of putting it. The the the, the Germans often have this uh, the, this little expression that they use. They talk about Geistige Umnachtung, right. so so going into the mental or spiritual night, um, and and maybe that's the best way to think about it. Okay, but yeah, I'm sure I, I believe that Nietzsche definitely Nietzsche and Heidegger. I'm sure will come up again because Klages was um, well, he was almost a, I believe a friend of Heidegger's, wasn't he? So and extremely and extremely familiar with Nietzsche's work. But um, so. Ludwig Klagers, how did you first come across his work and why did it interest you uh, enough to write uh, your book, Ludwig Klagers and the Philosophy of Life, a vitalist toolkit, and also the um, the introduction to two of uh, Theon's recent publications regarding Klagers? Right, okay. Uh, there's, there's, there's kind of two separate questions there. Uh, how did I first come across Klagers? Um, and, and, and that was when I was working on Jung. And, and there's this strange relationship or lack of a relationship uh, between Jung and Klagers. And after all, they, 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 they lived not far from each other. Um, Jung was in Kuznacht and Klagers was in Kilchberg, uh, just up the road or just up the lake, I, I, I suppose, just over the lake. Uh, and, and yet, never the twain shall meet. Uh, there's, there's no real uh, substantial engagement between between each other. Klages is really quite dismissive about the, the project of psychoanalysis in in in, in general, uh, and, and and Jung mentions Klages really relatively rarely when you consider um, what important connections and overlaps there are there are between them. Uh, and so Klages was kind of was kind of uh, came on the came on the horizon there, and I kept on wanting to um, you know follow follow that up and and find out what was really going on in Klages. But it's actually very difficult to do, going back to the question of the arts and humanities, because um, nobody wants to fund work on that. And although I've kept on uh, putting in for grants and putting in for bids and putting in for projects and, and so on, um, uh, uh, none of them ever worked. And that's why I ended up doing the toolkit um, as kind of uh, a kind of salvage operation, I suppose, really, on, um, on all the grant applications that I put in, uh, but also to try and correct a little bit some of the image that is there around Klagers, some of the perceptions, I'd say misperceptions, um, uh, that make him a, an unpopular, um, in some cases, in the eyes of some, a sort of sulfurous figure. So I wanted to do that as a kind of a little bit of a correction and, and simply to try and gather together my own thoughts about Klagers, because I think one of the big questions that one has with him is what on earth is he really on about? <laughs> um, and he, he's, he's really such a challenging thinker. Um, and, and what I regret is that is that so many of his critics never really engage with his work, never really look at it seriously. Um, I mean, I know that uh, this podcast is dedicated to fringe philosophy, obscure theory, unappreciated thinkers. Well, absolutely, Clarkus fits into that mould. Um, unappreciated doesn't begin to describe it. Yeah, I did. Know, I noticed. Um, I'm in complete agreement with you there in um, the the recent Catholic Gnosis by. Um, Theon publishing where you know the one of the few books uh, English translation books on Clagas is there's a lot of criticism of Clagas at the time and it is largely ad hominem there's there's very few points when I thought well they're not you know they're not uh, engaging with any of his philosophy which is relatively rich relative in its uh, and it is it's not as if you couldn't um, critique it in a sy systemic fashion either he is placing himself in part of as as part of a system, as I can see it, um, and as part of the system which was, you know, going on around the time, which I, at least I think perhaps it's a continental bias, but it seems to me that it's sort of a overflow of Kant and critique and that area. But before we get into his work, the, the you know, we don't want to start from an incorrect point of view. So you said that, you know, that part of your aim with Klagers was to come at the misconceptions and the incorrect view. So if if 
you know what 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 are the la- the, the the main misconceptions people have nowadays with regards to clients okay okay yeah now and uh, say something about that um uh, just let me pick up on the, the the question of how it came about that i was um uh, writing the preferences for for theon mm-hmm. for and, and so on um and, and it's basically because they were kind enough to ask me mm-hmm. um uh, and it's it's it, it's rare to get anybody getting in touch with you saying we'd you know, we'd like you to do something on uh, on Clargers on and and certainly uh, something supportive on on Clargers. Um, and um, in in a way, I'd sort of like to pay tribute to them as a publishing house for uh, for taking on this uh, this this project of um, of getting folk interested in in Clargers. Um, and I know that Theon Verlag has um, uh, has its own uh, emphases and its own its own interests and and so on. Um, uh, but I, I have to say that I was impressed. I was invited to uh, write these these prefaces for the first doctoral work that was done on Clargers and then the first uh, translation in English of, of Cosmogonic Eros. Um, and I had completely free hand, um, which was wonderful. And it was, look, you know, here's the space. You can get on and, and say what you want to do about it. Um, and it was certainly great to to work with them in that in that regard. Um, and it's it's true that Theon Verlag is is not a standard academic publishing house, and the problem is that standard academic publishing houses don't want to have anything to do with clients. So it's not to put Theon down; that's simply a recognition of um, uh, how it came to be that I uh, that I worked with them, and it, it was a great experience uh, working with the editor David Beth, I have to say. Um, but it, it's one of the problems. Going back to your other question of the misconceptions that are that are there. Uh, is is that Clargers has, I think, largely as a result of of not being read, um, and we might want to talk about you know why he's not being read and why it is so difficult to uh, to read him, um, has come to be tainted uh, like so many German thinkers um, with the brush of being right wing, and I think it's one of the things which which really blocks reception of his work is this accusation that you're dealing with a thinker who is right wing uh, or, or or even Nazi and so on, and it's curious. Um, because up until, up until comparatively recently, that wasn't a problem for Heidegger. Heidegger, who, whether you think of him as right wing or not, was certainly a, a, a paid-up member of the uh, of the National Socialist Party. And for, for decades and decades, this wasn't a problem. Um, and I don't have a problem with it in as much as, you know, I'm interested in Heidegger's thought and in his writings, not in what Heidegger may or, or, or may not have done. But I think that even Heidegger has started to run out of road on that one, and that um, now that uh, the black books have appeared, um, which after all told us nothing new, uh, didn't really reveal anything I think that was um, shocking about um, about Heidegger's political stance, which is shocking enough as it is. Um, uh, but I think even Heidegger is having a bigger t- uh, is having a tough time of it now. Uh, but Kargas, I think, never really even got into the race. Um, and we might talk about you know why that's uh, why that's happened. Partly it's to do with misconceptions. Partly it's also then to do, I think, with the way that the arts and humanities works in terms of its reception of, of thinkers. Give a dog a bad name and hang him, um, and that's certainly done for Clarkers. Yeah. So why why didn't he? Why do you think he uh, he didn't get into the race? Why he get into the race? Well, he. He, he, he was in the race, I think, at the beginning of the 20th century and um, up until the Second World War. He was he was a very popular uh, lecturer on the on the lecturing circuit. Um, I suppose one might compare him to figures like uh, Rudolf Steiner, that there seems to have been this culture in Europe um, that uh, people would go and work in factories and in the evening would come out and go and listen to a quasi-academic talk. Because um, I suppose there was no television or it kept them out of the pubs or something like that. Uh, and Clargers did an awful lot of lecturing, um, but crucially, it was most of the time it was outside the academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, not exclusively, but a lot of the time he was giving popular lectures uh, and it was nothing to do with the academy. So he never really got his foot inside that academic door. Um, and people like that, of course, it's never forgiven them if they manage to go and be popular. Um, after the Second World War, I think then it all begins to fall apart for a number of reasons. Um, partly because of this political accusation that's made against him, but partly because um, he wasn't really widely translated. Um, uh, of Cosmogonic Eros, which Theon Philard published, is the, um, the only the second work of Clarges to be published uh, in English in its entirety. Uh, the first one, The Science of Character, is 1925, out of print, um, almost impossible to find. Um, so there was no real international reception of his work. 
And then tied up with that, I think thirdly, is that his German is extraordinarily difficult. He really is a challenge. Um, and he's certainly a challenge to translate. Um, and I know that where there have been um, editions of his work um, uh, or, or anthologies of selected passages from his work, one can have a number of problems with them because of the political slant um, that, that's put on them. But it's also that they aren't terribly accurate translations. But, but as I discovered when I was doing the work on the on the Klager's toolkit, it, he is extraordinarily difficult to translate. I, I don't think I've come across anybody where, where the level of difficulty is so intense in terms of syntax, um, words with multiple meanings. I mean, he really, he, he, it, it's a devil of a job to, to actually get at the heart of what he's saying. So there's a kind of communicative difficulty in there as well, tied up with the fact, finally, uh, that he never really had a school. Uh, he never really, uh, unlike psychoanalysts, um, you had a Freudian movement, you had a Jungian movement, um, you had kind of an existential tradition which based itself on Heidegger, but Clark has never really got a school up and going, never had uh, any successor, um, his thought really wasn't carried forward, um, and so when he dies, Clarkesian philosophy dies as, as well, and it's just been a question of people picking up the bones and uh, kicking around his grave. Have there, have there been any uh, relatively known figures who could be considered Clarkians? Well, un unfortunately, not to my knowledge. Now, it's true that there were uh, figures associated with him, uh, like uh, Werner Deubel, like uh, Hans Egert Schröder, um, but, but they too are pretty much for uh, forgotten figures. Um, and I think one might say that, you know, the wider tradition, and I think it's one of the reasons why it's worthwhile trying to recuperate Klagers and, um, and, and, and trying to make sense of him, is that he does represent this, this great occluded tradition of vitalism or, or Lebensphilosophie, uh, which in itself, again, has, has acquired this kind of, in my view, unjustified political taint. Um, the argument being, that if you say that irrational things need to be taken seriously, that in some way leads you inevitably to a right-wing program. And I think that that's what's, uh, that's what's done for vitalism in general and for Klagers in particular. Um, and although it's curious that the similar kind of case that can be argued from the, from the left, a civilizations, a, a critique of civilization that Klagers makes, I think is, has an awful lot in common with what we find in, in Adorno and Horkheimer. But because Adorno and Horkheimer are arguing from the left, they're kind of okay. Because Klagers is arguing from, well, some kind of right wing. I, mean, I don't think he's extreme right, but he, in fact, he's not really a political thinker at all. He's certainly not left wing. Therefore, he's entirely out of court. It's interesting that you mention, uh, you know, that I don't always want to get into the politics of these things, but it's often unavoidable. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned, you know, he's certainly not left wing and he has this notion in his philosophy. And this isn't he, this never comes across as political, but I guess nowadays it would be taken as a political statement, which is one of the sort of cornerstones of his philosophy is this idea that we need a connection to the time and peoples of antiquity, which I think now would be misconstrued as a sort of... Um, thick-headed sort of traditionalism but it doesn't you know unless you read the works firsthand uh, without some sort of uh, interpretation uh, it doesn't come across as like that at all and it's much like Heidegger where, where you when you read it you sell yourself you sort of think well I can see I can see how one would push this in some political direction but you would have to do it going in with with that bias in mind and actively trying to do that I, I think you're absolutely right James and there th th there is some kind of strange association between classicism, classicists, and, and, and the political right. I mean, you know, one might call it the Enoch Powell effect, uh, that there's, there's some kind of unholy connection that's, uh, that's there. Uh, but I think that, I think it's, it's true to compare Klagers and Heidegger and, and, and many other thinkers uh, in, in regard to, to how, how they, why they see the Greeks being important. Um, you know, there, there's a great quotation with, uh, in a conversation that Goethe has with Eckerman, where he says, we've always got to get back to the Greeks always getting back to the to the Greek. So the question is, what do the Greeks represent? Now, this is a big question for German literature and culture in general. You know, it's the question for Goethe, for Schiller, for Winkelmann. I mean, it, it's 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 massively important. There was a book that was called uh, the, uh, the 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 tyranny of Greece over over Germany, and that's that's uh, by Humphrey Trevelyan in the about about 1950. And I think that's 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 you know not too exaggerated a way of of, of putting it. 
But you can't, I think, put all of those figures. Well, maybe some people would, but I wouldn't say you can put all of those figures into the right wing uh, side of things and say, and therefore we, ne we, we neglect it. Uh, but there is this sense, I think that's true with, with Clagas, that, that when he's talking about the Greeks, and he, he means even the pre-classical Greeks, he wants to get right back to the, to the Pelasgians, as he, as, as he calls them, um, uh, that there is something there which is seen to be inherently political suspect. But I think you're right to interrogate that. I think you're absolutely right to interrogate it. And we should always pause and say, well, you know, it's too easy a maneuver to say, to equate things and not then justify or not then examine that equation and say, well, is it is it justified? Um, or are we just in a lazy minded way repeating an oft uh, an oft made critique without interrogating its own assumptions? Mm -hmm. What does Clarkus mean by the Pelasgians? Because this, is, as far as I understood, it, it was sort of as far back as we could go where there is a coherent culture to be studied. You know, it, it seemed to me that we, there, there was, you know, he was going back to sort of the dawn of any classical culture as, 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 as far back as one could go and finding ways to quite practically and, and, and sort of physically connect with these, with these cultures. So it, it, would that be a, a good definition of Pelasgian, what, what Clargus means by Pelasgians? I, I, I think that's fair enough. I mean, it is. Uh, it, it comes, I think, out of out of Clarke's reception of um, uh, equally ignored and occluded figures like um, uh, Bachofen, um, who, are, who are trying to get at the roots of civilization and 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 try and understand, you know, on the basis we understand where we are, where we are, and where we're going if we can see where we've where we've come from. Um, and what what interest in Clargas and the Pelasgians, and I think I think he uses them in, in two ways. One as a kind of mythical oarfolk, you know, um, it, they're posited as a kind of historical moment. Uh, but but he also I think uses it as um, as a cipher for uh, a, a communities which um, he and other thinkers would refer to as primitive. Um, nowadays, one would say indigenous or autochthonous cultures. Uh, and, and there is this great sense with Clagas that, that he's interested in cultures which have not gone, which have not developed the main, uh, the main Western route, which he sees as fundamentally catastrophic. Um, and I think that the, the figures of the, of the Pelasgians are there as a kind of other to what he sees as a terrible catastrophe, which is history itself. And of course, that's another reason that makes uh, that, that Clarkes is very unpopular is you've got world historical pessimism on a giant scale. He, he even makes Oswald Spengler look cheerful sometimes. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's a serious feat to make uh, <laughs> the decline of the West turn into a sort of uh, enjoyable story. Um, certainly not enjoyable for how dense it is, but it's been a long time since I've read it. The, this is one of the, one of the other things I was going to mention is when Clarkes is, is writing, so... He's born 1872, passed, dies in 1956. What we can see here is, um, to quote another controversial German figure, but what Junger would call the uh, total urban militarization, which is sort of the uh, the beginnings of, you know, modernity in a very clear aesthetic form. So, you know, the end of the 19th century is you're witnessing the end of the end of any remnants of classical culture getting taken over by machination, automization, um, and, you know, just mechanization of any human or, or vital components. Do you think this was another reason he didn't go too, down too well at the time, is that compared to Nietzsche, who makes his philosophy seem a bit more beautiful, and Heidegger, who is extremely academic, Klages is both cynical, and he is beautiful, but it's extremely biting, and extremely acidic, and there's no, he doesn't hold back. So do you think that's another reason for his controversy is that he's very clearly against, you know, modernity. A lot of his actual philosophy is uh, trying to lift the veil of modernity. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that, that, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, I, I think it's true that um, you, you've got this great civilizationskritik um, uh, in, in, in Klager's and, and you've got this great suspicion of modernity. Um, but then in many ways, you know, he's not alone in that. And sometimes I think you'd be hard pressed to find a German intellectual who didn't have a skepticism about modernity. Uh, I mean, Freud doesn't like it. We think about Walter Benjamin and, you know, the angel of history, there's piling up of rubble and, and so on. Um, so it's, it's, you know, Klager's fits in right in there. 
But, and I think that you've put your finger on something which, which is a crucial difference, is his use, his use of language is, is absolutely scathing and biting. Um, it's, it's, it, it, he really is extraordinarily um, energetic um, in, his, in, in his critique. Um, and I think that that makes him, as the Germans say, not so salonfeig. Um, it, it is one of the things that, that people's hackles rise because of because of the kind of language that he that he uses. And I don't think it's because he, he um, is particularly uh, disrespectful uh, in his in his language, uh, although there is, uh, I think, a, a concern about um, certain an anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, which he which he uses in some in some places. I mean, we might want to talk about that. But overall, his his his, his language is. I mean, it uh, it is. I think one of the things that characterizes his uh, his his great work, uh, Der Geist als Widersacher der Seele. Uh, and already we've got the kind of problem there in <laughs> translation. So is that the spirit as the enemy of the soul or the mind? Um, and, and is it a pope? Is Widersacher an enemy or opponent? Is, is a legal term adversary? So you know we can't even translate the guy's title with, before we get going on the the rest of the one five hundred pages of it. But of course that's also what makes him interesting is that his use of language does, aside from its vituperative quality, force us I think to go back and think well you know he you can't read him fast. And mm -hmm. I think that would I would say that's one of one of the great things about him is that you know his language does encourage you to slow up. You've got to go slow if you're going to get anywhere with it uh, at, at all. Um, and I think it's, well, there, there is a, a general cultural difference between um, German academics and British academics in terms of how rude you can be. Um, and I don't think Clark is the only German writer who, who can be absolutely vituperative and absolutely tear into his, uh, his opponents or tear into positions that he, that he disagrees with. Um, it's simply part of German academic or German intellectual uh, culture, but it doesn't translate very well, and it certainly doesn't tra translate very well nowadays um, in the 21st century. Perhaps one one other thing, because you, you you pointed something out there that I'm only just realising now, like after reading Clark's, it says the language is perhaps it's fairly difficult to translate and almost an antagonist against the English language because the English language is extremely pragmatic. It's one of sense and working things out. Where and if you you know we've mentioned again, but if you think of the the academics or the the, the known thinkers around Klagers, Nietzsche's writing is poetic and but but it's extremely authoritative and clearly inf influenced by Wagner and Schopenhauer and sort of um, Rider the Valkyries esque sort of um, drums beating. Heidegger is fairly systematic. Um, but Klager's is to sort of read an aphorism and then sit back and then read it again and then re read it a couple more times and try to figure out what's actually going on because, I mean, I struggle with it with someone who's, who's uh, you know, relatively well-read in, in, in this sphere at least, but there's so many different um, known terms and context that it can be happening within that uh, you, you can't help but think that Klager's must be not necessarily teasing you but making you work in in sort of a vitalist tradition making his philosophy is actually being practically uh performed by the reader via you know partaking in his philosophy it's sort of like a the dada tradition you can't help but um take part in it by the fact that he's not running you around in circles but make you know making you work so yeah i don't, I don't know what you'd make of it but it's quite <laughs> oh yeah no i i i think that's you're right he he, he, really, he really does make you work uh, but i think i'd say it's it, it's a little more widespread than, than that. And um, if one looks at early 20th century or late 19th century German writers, academics, I'm thinking about other forgotten figures like, like Theodor Lips, for instance, uh, or Friedrich Theodor Fischer, you know, these, or Fritz Mautner, uh, these all people, they, they, they all wrote so much. It's just, they are astonishingly productive, you know, three, four, five volume histories of this, that, and the, and the other. I came across the other day, Fritz Maltner, I hadn't realized he'd written a four volume history of atheism. Extraordinary stuff, and it's, and, and it's all there. And, and it is highly, um, sophisticated, very academically informed, uh, German. And a lot of it, of course, uh, assumes that you have the same kind of educational basis, educational cultural starting point. And the sad truth is, and it kind of bears out what Clark has says, these days, we simply don't have it. Mm -hmm. um, um, and everybody's chucking around mythological references, philosophical references. This is a, this is a real, a real challenge. Um, 
and I think one finds it in other areas as well. I think there's there's a great story where the um, uh, one of the early psychoanalysts, Ernest Jones from Wales, went uh, went over to Freud um, to, um, to to hear the uh, the Freudian discussion evenings taking place in in Vienna, and he said, I I I felt so overwhelmed. These guys know so much. They're quoting theology, philosophy, mythology, and I just can't keep up with them. Um, and I think we know we feel for you. Ernest, <laughs> we, we know what it's like. But there's, that's also another reason why I think these people are worthwhile looking at. And, and Clark is in particular, a bit like Jung. I've learned so much from them. I, I, there are lots of things I simply wouldn't have come across. And even if you don't believe a word of what they say, you'd, you, they're, they're an education in themselves. Would you agree that philosophically Clark is largely, um, can largely be placed, at least in the beginning, uh, within... Um, Kantianism, so Kant, Schopenhauer, Hegel, uh, this tradition, the tradition of critique. Do you think that that's where he's placing himself philosophically, or is there is there some other clear vectors going on there? Yeah, it's it's it, it's complex. I mean, I think if you look, if, if again, if you look at uh, just the title page of Der Geistas Widersache der, der Seele, you know, he sees himself as as as, as putting all the credit of all the previous philosophers to write. Uh, and, in, in, including Kant, and he clearly, I think, for us, uh, makes sense of a tradition that evolves out of Kant. That is to say, German idealism, and then the um, transition from German idealism into existentialism. You know, he's 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 part of that in the time frame, and he's analogous with it or homologous with it in certain uh, in certain ways. But I think he is uh, like Nietzsche, um, ferociously anti-Kantian. Uh, and that trying to approach it, you know, the, his, his system, and I think there is a system buried away through all the excurses and diatribes and aphorisms, but also so many of the beautiful lyrical passages that are there as, as well. There is a system by which I mean a kind of coherence of, of thought. You know, he, he, he does see himself as making a series of coherent, coherent propositions, even if people don't want to believe that that's what he's trying to he's trying to do. But I think that a Kantian framework simply doesn't work for for him, almost because he, well, you can see the way that he uses the word Geist. Now, the term Geist, mind, spirit, intellect, for, for almost every thinker is is positively valued, certainly as for Hegel, for instance. Um, and, and for almost for any other thinker, Geist is seen as something positive. Uh, but for Klager's, his great inversion move is to say, no, no, the Geist is the baddie. Uh, that's where that's where it all goes wrong, and and hence this tension between this critique of the intellect, the critique of Geist on the one hand, and yet the fact that he's not just ranting and raging. I mean, there are bits of that, but it's also densely, extraordinarily densely argued. And he himself, I think, talks about wanting to critique the spirit with the means of the spirit. Um, and I think anybody, you know, you can't simply. I think it, it's an injustice to represent him as a sheerly irrationist. Because no one who's sheerly a rationalist sits down and writes 1,500 pages of very, very dense prose. So what, in what way does Clark understand the spirit? Does he change it in any way? Because he, he um, you know, the, so Clark is, is a sort of, his philosophy is directed at life, its vitalism, um, and like an expulsion of life in all its sort of glory. Uh, but he's also... Uh, very, he's a natural philosopher. He's, he's uh, his sort of key to nature is is not in the spirit, but in in the, in the will uh, and the soul to a certain extent. So, in what way does he see see these terms? Because this is where uh, someone such as myself, who studied German idealism for a long time, this is like the 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 Klager's brick wall. You know, everything you've ever you've ever learned about spirit, intellect, and will is just not so not much so much inversed. It's like he's stepped back and gone, you got it wrong, you got it wrong from from the off. You know, here's how it should have been. So I mean it's a big question, but the, the system seems to have to revolve around these terms. So if you can, a, a an overview of a potential Clargian system is well, that a possibility. I, I, I... Well, no, I, 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 I think you've understood him remarkably well there, because uh, because you know he, he is taking a, a kind of sledgehammer to the to, to the to the whole philosophical tradition. And I'm thinking about um, that uh, a, a little passage which you you, you identified in uh, in inviting me to do this, and I'll just quote it and then just say something about it because I think that might help you know get the essence of what Clarke's argument is. Mm-hmm. He says, body and soul are the poles of the life cell. 
which belong inseparably together, into which, from outside, the spirit, like a wedge, inserts itself in an endeavor to split them apart, thus to desole the body, to disembody the soul, and in this way, finally, to kill all the life it can reach. And it is it's a kind of classic uh, Clarke's passage, uh, beautifully written, uh, but what the hell does it mean? We've got conventional souls there of body and soul, but immediately he's saying, well, these things belong together. So he's not interested in a uh, sort of Kantian uh, noumenon phenomenon distinction there between body and uh, Descartesian body and, and intellect. Uh, rather, he thinks of them as, as co-implicates, as poles, as two things that belong together of the life cell, that is to say, of, of, of everything that's living. So we have body and soul, which are there, the two poles, they belong together, and, and that's what enables life to take place. And then, and then something goes wrong. And um, we're presented almost with this kind of sci-fi story of uh, these two poles, and then zooming in like a spaceship from outside, here comes the Geist, and it splits them apart. But it's clear, I think, that Klages is using this as a kind of um, parable or a kind of little little dramatized story for what he's trying to what he's trying to get at, um, because we find ourselves, I think, in this position he describes at the end, where the body is desouled, the soul is disembodied, and our form of life is itself under a, a under attack. Um, and so I think what's he trying to get at when he's talking about the spirit there? And I think it's to do with the spirit is, on the one hand, it's a, it's a term, it's which he derives from Aristotle, uh, something which is outside life it, itself. But I think he's using it as a way to describe the way that um, too much intellect, too much thought, the wrong kind of intellect, the wrong kind of thought uh, ends up depreciating life that it can become inimical to life and, and hostile to life. And I think that one of the things that he's thinking about is the spirit, if you like, of calculation, of reductionism, uh, if, one, if one might also say a kind of bureaucratic mindset, which can only ever see statistics and can't see individuals. And I think that, that what Klages is trying to do is to offer an, an, an allegory for a way of thinking, which is so predominant in the West uh, that we simply don't notice that it's there. And that's why it's so hard for him to try and find a way of hooking us into what he's talking about, uh, because it's it's not the way that we are conventionally going to have been used to thinking about things. But at the same time, it never once came across to me as perhaps perhaps I misread it or didn't. It Perhaps my mind just doesn't work the right way for this. But, it, you know, you say that it's it's sort of averse to the Western modes, but, in, but at no point did it ever come across as um, stereotypically Eastern in its... In its its thought, it doesn't come across it that way. So it's and I don't I don't want to do that sort of uh, cliche thing of saying oh it's the third path because I think he is revealing something. His point is that he's revealing something that used to be there. You know he's he's big on the past, but not in sort of a linear way. The past as a something that can be found and something that is currently being uprooted at the time is is how he puts it. Well, no, I, I think that I think that's fair comment. And um, even though there there are a few passages where where, where Parker's, um touches on Eastern thought, but um, he certainly doesn't discuss it in in, in great in great detail. That that's true. Uh, he sticks very much within the tradition against which he's he's fighting all the time. And I think that's 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 maybe part of part of the um, uh, the tension that's there in in Klager's is that he's profoundly dissatisfied with what he's what, what he's inherited from the Western intellectual tradition, and yet that's the, that's the game that he's going to play. That's what he's sort of going to be going to be working with uh, within. Um, and I'm reminded a little bit of the the, the kind of skepticism that uh, that Jung had about uh, Eastern philosophy, uh, not, not, not that he had anything against it, um, but his question was, well, is it, is it helpful? Is it appropriate? Is it the most useful? Is it the most authentic way for the Western mind, the Western soul to go? We have to work out these problems within the traditions that we inherit. And I think that's the way Clarke's approach it. Um, in what, so what was, his, um, what was his approach? What, what did he see as something that we inherited, which has disappeared, but we can you know, retrieve and use to as an sort of an antidote against the the sort of statistical, you know, economizing mindset that was 
you know, at the time infecting uh, Western yeah. society. Yeah, I, I think it's perhaps it's best to think about it in terms of this this uh, rather puzzling expression that uh, that he uses, uh, which in, in German is die Wirklichkeit der Bilder. Die Wirklichkeit der Bilder. And again, we've got a translation problem because Wirklichkeit is on the one hand reality, but it's also got built into it this idea of Wirken, you know, what has an effect. So it's it's not a sort of you know neutral term. It's got this idea of, of energy, vitality in it. It's it, it's wirklich. Uh, again, Jung says has a little kind of saying, wirklich ist was wirkt. So you know what's real is is what has an effect, um, and what has an effect for Klagers and what he describes as real as having an effect is then well Bilder. So uh, pictures or images. And I think that's why this whole kind of Kantian ontology doesn't help us get at what he's trying to what he's trying to say, because one of the big questions with with Jung would be, well, what's an archetype? And I think one of the big questions for Klagers is, well, what's a Bild? What is an image? Or indeed, to use the expression which he also throws around a lot, it's it's an Urbild, so a a primordial image. And again, this this kind of uh, preference for 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 the primitive for, for the primordial. For the primitive in that sense, um, for the foundational, um, uh, that that um, is profoundly out of uh, out of keeping with um, our kind of sympathies and approach uh, today. And it's a very good question about you know what an orbit is. And I think it goes back to this this different way of looking at things. Again, he has a whole terminology uh, based around the idea of shaung, so anshaung, shaung, seeing, perception, vision. And I think he's trying to hit this beautiful passage where he illustrates what he's trying to get at in relation to a wood. And uh, he says, well, you can think of the the wood, uh, the collection of trees uh, in the way that a botanist would. Uh, so it's a particular particular type of trees, deciduous, conifer, whatever. Uh, you know, you can describe them in in botanical terms. And again, you've eradicated the individual and and you've assimilated it to something which is abstract and in that sense, geistic. It's something which is outside space and time, a bit like the way this wedge-like geist comes in in the, the little passage we were discussing earlier. Or you could look at a wood and you could look at it from an economic point of view. You could say, well, you know, I can chop all that down and sell the, the trees at uh, so much per pound of kilo of wood. So that, that would represent so much in terms of profit. But Klager says that he's interested in the way of looking at the wood, which recognizes its its unique uh, specificity. And he rather beautifully describes, he says, what he calls the bild, the, the image of the wood um, at a sunset when it's absolutely glowing, bathed in um, the lovely light of a, of a setting sun at a particular day, at a particular time. And he says that that's what I call real. And that's not captured by this economizing or by this scientificizing uh, or this or any of the other kinds of reductionist thinking which he associates with the spirit he says what i'm what i'm trying to articulate is something which is which is unique unrepeatable specific that is what i call real and he thinks that's the reality that we've lost sight of in this kind of tragedy narrative of history which he developed and uh, so the the really difficult question in what way does he develop any ways in which we can retrieve this? I believe there is um, something that something that he I'm, I imagine, or at least I'm hoping in a certain way that in the in the original German that this perhaps means something different and has different connotations. But he he mentioned something called transportation and to be transported. Is this one of the you know the methods of attending to? So just to go over what you were saying there, there's this difference between you can think of the woods as a thing, that's what it is in real life, and uh, the thing can be destroyed. But the image you're on about with the sunset, the image is eternal because it's held within, uh, I guess, a subject, subjective unconscious, and these can be passed on in a certain way. Is is this this method, uh, method in, uh, of sort of man transporting himself? I believe this has a connection to this philosophy of uh, things and images and the way in which we can sort of bring the past so that we can uh, begin to attend to this mode of seeing that we've lost, according to Klagers. Oh, well, I, 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 think, I think you're really putting it in, a, in an excellent way. I think you should write a book on, on <laughs> Klagers, really. Because, uh, you, 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 you've, you've really, I think, seized, seized the core of what is what is about. I mean, to, to, 
uh, to pick up on your question there about you know what does it mean by 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 being transported and and, and so on perhaps it's helpful to say that uh, that the cargo's uh, starts off his career, um, and, and he is actually a, a very typical kind of bog-standard um, uh, scientist. Um, he, he does a lot of work in chemistry, and um, he does doctorate on, on, on chemistry. Uh, and he then thinks, no, this is not this is not what I want to be. This is this 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 very very empirical scientific viewpoint is is is, is not delivering. And he becomes interested in something <laughs> completely different, which is graphology. Uh, so it becomes very interested in handwriting. Of course, this again, one of the things that pe people think, well, this is a little bit wacky and, and so on. But at the time, graphology was um, incredibly um, quite, well, quite well respected. Um, and I've heard stories today of um, Swiss companies where people have gone for interviews and have had to give over, had to do handwriting samples <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so on. But he, but he then goes beyond graphology. Why is he interested in graphology? It is because he's, he says it is an it is an expression, it is an Ausdruck, and I think there we begin to see what's important about it is he sees not just the handwriting, but the body itself, the the, the entire disposition of the body. Again, we could reduce this to a kind of a crude kind of physiognomic approach, but I don't think that's what he's about. It's it's about a moving body. Um, he, he, he says, in order to understand somebody, you have to look at their expressions. You have to look at how soul and body interact in terms of not just physical appearance. It's not as crude as that, but, but posture, dynamic, voice, intonation. It, it, why? Because these things are an ausdruck of what he calls character. And so, again, this idea of character is what is unique and an individual uh, about a person. And we might say of somebody that we don't really know them um, until we know that their character. Uh, and that's what he's trying to get out there. And he's trying to say that, that is really the most that that's of the prime importance. Somebody, somebody's character and individuality, which is unique and can only be expressed in a given set of circumstances in a, in, in a given way. That's what I really want to try and un, try and understand. So it's about seeing the world as an as an Ausdruck or as or as an expression. And as part of that, another form of trans, transport that he's interested in is, uh, and again, this gets him a, a lot of criticism, is is what he calls ecstasy. Uh, he writes an awful lot about ecstasy in in his um, book uh, of cosmogonic eros. But of course, the whole point there is to is to look at the title and the eros that he's talking about is cosmogonic. And and I don't think that um, I think I think we to, I think it would be to, to simplify and to misrepresent Klagers if one thought of Klagesian ecstasy as taking the drug of that name or um, getting drunk or using narcotics or not that he not that he's again that kind of thing but it's too simple to say that because the the eros in which he's interested in is cosmogonic that is to say the eros that makes the world. In other words, that makes the world as a meaningful place in which we can have a meaningful life. And that's what he sees as that's that's the heart of his Leibniz philosophy is seeing the world as a, if you like, as a cosmos, not just as a set of biochemical or physical or economic laws and, and, and affairs. And and in particular, he has this he has this idea of an ecstasy of a of, of a love of an eros, as he calls it, of, of distance. And I think there partly this has been taken back to his his own attitudes to women, experiences with women, in particular the love affair with the fascinating figure of uh, Francisca zu, zu Reventlow. But I think that would be, again, too bi biographically reductive just to see it as a kind of, as a form of, uh, as an expression of frustration, because I think it's more than that. He's, he's, he's saying that the eros of distance involves in it something which is, which is precious, which is a kind of tension. It is something which is yearning for satisfaction. And, and in that way, it, it, um, allows to remain intact and unsullied the object um, of its desire. And it's not a resentment towards that object. It is it is almost a kind of paying homage to that. And I wonder if in some ways he's, he's trying to re-articulate in a metaphysical or in an existential way something really like, you know, the, the dynamics of courtly love. But the whole point about courtly love is, is, is that it isn't consummated, um, but that there is this, this worship from afar. And, and I think this idea of, of worship from afar, again, it's not just about interpersonal relations. It's about our position in the world and how we look at it, is that we enjoy things from afar. We look at them. 
we don't try to reach out and do violence to them. We don't try to, we shouldn't try to, to grasp them, to seize them, to turn them into tools. Rather, we look at them and if you like, we enjoy them, we appreciate them, we acknowledge their unique specificity in themselves. And I think here you can see that there are different ways of, of reading what Clargas is trying to do. Is this a kind of postmodern Gnosticism, um, as some people have argued, and that, that seems to me a perfectly valid approach. Is it a kind of um, aestheticism? Um, it's about seeing the world, as Nietzsche would say, as a work of art. And I, I, I think that, that Clargas can be quite usefully subsumed to these two traditions of aestheticism, uh, within the German intellectual tradition and maybe the wider tradition of Gnosticism as well. Uh, it's interesting that you, at the start, you mentioned that um, Klagers wasn't fond of psychoanalysis, you know, so him and Jung never really had too much to do with each other because he wasn't fond of psychoanalysis. Do you think that's because psychoanalysis, um, at least in the sort of classical Freudian sense, would take certain ideas, uh, narcissism, medieval complexes, uh, you know, overarching categories that you could slot someone into, and then what what psychoanalysis ends up doing is basically destroying the the character by via deconstruction. Do you think that's why Klagers would have this uh, relatively hostile relationship towards it? Well, I th I think that's right. I, th I think it's to do with the different senses in which in which psychoanalysis and 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 Clarkesian philosophy would want to interpret the idea or would want to use the and how it would understand the concept of the zela and of course there is an interesting shift within psychoanalysis that it starts off by talking by talking about itself as a zelan era and then becomes the psychologie which makes it sound more sci scientific hmm. you certainly couldn't accuse Clarkes of of being overly scientific there but what what he means by soul is something which isn't really a christian soul it, it isn't the kind of um, psychoanalytic sense um, of an unconscious, uh, because I think uh, Klagers wants to, and he's particularly suspicious about Freud, I think he wants to introduce a distinction between what he calls eros, this eros that we were just talking about, this cosmogonic eros, this eros that creates the world by allowing us to see where we are in a meaningful way, and, and what he calls sexus. And and I think that he, he dismisses uh, Freud uh, nothing to do with, um, uh, I think, an anti-Semitism in, in this. It's, it's because he thinks that Freudian psychology has a, a diminished and uh, a limited appreciation of what one means by Zeller. Oh, one thing I actually did want to, I did want to add, um, you, you mentioned Klager's not, you know, when he when his understanding of ecstasy wasn't, you know, you don't want to make the mistake of, you know, thinking it is drug taking along those lines, even though it's really difficult to pin to point out the the nuance of Klager's ecstasy, actually, and you, when you were talking about it, I realised that many of his uh, contemporaries that are sort of close to him and romanticism and decadence, and you've also got Crowley at the same time. You've got Nietzsche when he was younger with relative sort of romantic affiliation with alcohol, and it, it at no point does it come across this way. But at the same time, it's it also doesn't come across as, uh, in the same way as um, Junger or Huxley as like a a very clear-cut pragmatic experiment in consciousness. It's it's a very specific action in relation to antiquity and contacting something extremely specific and this ex you know very very specific mode of being. And that's I think that seems to me the only reason he would sort of do anything along those lines is to to reach that. So I just you know I think it's interesting that he also didn't get put you know he didn't get pulled into the academic Hegelian camp but he also didn't get pulled into the the dandy you know because when I first started reading the uh, chthonic gnosis I thought oh no a, another dandy um I'm not not a big fan of dandies but they always uh always turn into something else near the end but yeah it's it's very very nuanced it, no you're absolutely right it it, it it is very nuanced and and, and I think that's it's really important to, to insist on that because um, uh, the the critics of Clarkers miss that, or aren't interested in that, or or um, you know, present a false image of them by by not bringing out that that subtlety, that nuance. Uh, it, he he's an incredibly difficult thinker, incredibly challenging, um, but I'd also want to say incredibly rewarding as well because he he he, he challenges so many of the things that I think we take 
we take for granted, and that can be a little bit un un uncomfortable. Um, and he does make people uncomfortable, and therefore he's excluded from the canon because people just want to have a, um, a, a comfortable set of uh, ideas that they could that they can reproduce. And Klager's really really challenges that. And 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 I think you're right that it's um, it goes back. It's not so much to do with an action. It's 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 to do with an attitude. And and that's where he is and is not a dandy. Um, he I would say that he shares with the figure of the dandy this idea of you know it's it's the attitude, it's it's the pose, the poise, it's 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 a style of life and so on. But that's it, he he doesn't mean that in any decadent or or, or hyper aesthetic uh, uh, sense. He's remarkable. He's remarkably common and common sense down to earth. And again, some of the examples that he uh, that he gives in his in his writings are are extraordinarily everyday. Something like, for example, when he's trying to explain instinct, and he talks about the the, the way that ducks will follow the will follow the mother duck or where he's trying to where he's trying to get a, uh, he's trying to explain why we have such a nostalgia for the past and he gives a little story about you know somebody turning up in their hometown many years on and they can see what's changed and what hasn't and and see what see how the past has lived on and so i would say that a, that a key notion um for understanding uh cargas is really this notion of the archaic uh, that is to say that there is a relation between the past and the present, and that why the past matters for Clarkers is because, in some sense, and as you've as you've alluded to, it's difficult to nail that down precisely. But in some sense, it it lives on and and is important. Um, and it and again, it's a bit like Nietzsche saying, well, we can be we can all be great philologists and we can publish our articles and we can go and work with Ritual in Leipzig and um, do seminar papers and so on and so forth. But have we really understood what the ancient Greeks were all about? Um, and Nietzsche then comes to the conclusion, no, we haven't. And in fact, he sees the academy as falsifying it. Nietzsche's solution, get out of the academy. Hmm. Fine for him because he got a very good pension deal and was able to do that. Hmm. Uh, but but it's, it's clear that these people see the academies in some way misrepresenting and in fact as being part and part of parcel of the problem. And I think that applies to Klagers as well. What he's trying to say is, is that we have to cultivate a kind of a kind of unshown, a kind of attitude, and and more importantly, that open ourselves up to the possibilities of the world to impress itself on us, for 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 its Ausdruck, its expression, to make an impression, Eindruck, on on us, and therefore it's about liberating the ego. Not in not in an Eastern sense, uh, not in a psychoanalytic sense, uh, not in the sense that one's working away at the ego in some kind of feverish way, but it's rather about about allowing allowing our soul to to interact with the world around us, and that 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 is both pragmatic and not pragmatic. Um, it's certainly not a political program. It's certainly not an economic program, so he, he's not helpful on those fronts. But one might call it a kind of existential aesthetic program. And you, you mentioned the ego here, and this was the third, first part of reading Clarkers where I really, I sort of really began to realise, okay, this is a truly original thinker, but you can begin to see why he's um, extremely challenging. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but for it, Clark, actually states with the ego, um, in opposition to many other camps that the ego is actually seeping into our being more and more. Now, to a certain extent, to the extent then, the as, as I read it, that the ego actually becomes our being by seeping into us. Now, this is against all Buddhist texts that would say that the ego, you know, is the, the, the false mirror of the self. Um, this is against sort of the, the Marxist idea of social capital, that capitalism is forming who you are in some way, and you have a... Um, an incorrect sort of uh, proletariat vision and that's been formulated by you. I'm trying to think who else. I mean, Kant would also say that you have the inner sense, which is our representation. So it's also against that. I'm trying to think but you know, every, every conception of the ego is always the thing, which is the false thing. You know, even Heidegger goes on about the authentic self. And, but, but Clarkers comes in and goes, nope, the ego is seeping into your being and is becoming who you actually are. And uh, I believe this was one of the primary bits that uh, influenced uh, Walter Benjamin, who I I imagine I haven't read too much Benjamin, but I imagine he would have changed it. But is that the the correct reading of Clarkers? Well, correct as as much as we can sort of figure out that that we are our we actually are our ego. 
Yeah, no, I, I, th I think you're doing a fantastic job of, uh, of, 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 of make, making, making sense of it. I think I should step out. I think you should just do the program sort of straight yourself as a, as, as a lecturer on, uh, on, on, on Parker. I'll say something about this. I'll just pick up on the point about Benjamin first, um, because it is interesting that, that Walter Benjamin, uh, the, the, the young Walter Benjamin, is terribly interested in Clark and um, wants to um, invite him to come and uh, give a talk at their sort of young person seminar and, and, and so on. So he doesn't think Clargus is an anti-Semitic thinker. Uh, he doesn't see Clargus as a right-wing thinker. It, it's true he's basing his knowledge mainly on off cosmogonic uh, um, um, eros. Um, uh, but, but you know, if you're going to be worried by Clargus, you might as well be worried by off cosmogonic eros as by, by anything else. But Ben is absolutely fascinated. And it's more, and it's then later on, when uh, he's he's told by Adorno, well, you know, you shouldn't be quoting that sort of stuff, um, uh, that he uh, that he drops it and doesn't and doesn't pursue it any any further. And and it is interesting, I think, the question of the relation between the Frankfurt School and Klagers, because they they have in common the fact that they both articulate a a similar civilization critique a critique of civilization, and similar. Um, that it's based around a a critique of a certain conception of the of the ego. Um, after all, the basic thesis of um, the dialectic of the Enlightenment um, is that we, in an Odysseus-like way, uh, torture and torment ourselves to shape our egos into, into particularly economically viable forms and so on. Um, and, and this seems to me is, is paralleled by what Klager says about the Eros, which he uh, talks about almost like some kind of, uh, sorry, talks about the ego, but he's talking about the ego rather like the spirit as some sort of vampiric invasion that's there. And I think that's the clue to understanding his critique of the ego as it goes back to his, his critique of Geist, which is to say, what does it mean to talk about the Geist as, as something which is external to the individual, external to life? Well, after all, thinking about things um, outside space and time, which is what we do when we think in a reductive way, um, he thinks that's that's the way that we can shape ourselves in a bad way, is that we can end up reducing ourselves and reducing the world around us to, say, purely economic components. And therefore, we kill a little bit of ourselves. Common to, to the Frankfurt School and to Klager's is critique of what we might call, um, Adorno has this great phrase, the totally administered society. So the science society, which is completely about administration, management, control, control for what or for profit, for profiting what, not life, but simply some abstract concern. Ah, we're back against the geist of something which is abstract, something which is inimical to life and, and so on. So I think this critique of the, of the ego is of a specifically Western ego, which is tied up with this idea of will, uh, with this idea of purposefulness. Um, and you can see why Clarkers isn't going to be very popular today, because he's he's not about willing and purposefulness and and so on. He sees those as as being as being hugely hugely problematic. And that's also, I think, at the end of the day, why for me Clarkers is is not a right wing thinker, because because I don't think he, I don't see him as sharing in this idea of you know the triumph of the will. Uh, to quote the name of the famous Lady Riefenstein film, he's absolutely against that kind of um, voluntaristic, uh, intrusive, violent brutalizing all of these things which one finds in national socialist Clargers is arguing against that there's a discussion to be had around certain anti-semitic tropes that Clargers uses but but they aren't integral to his his argument which in many ways is would see national socialism as an as just as the frankfurt school would as the culmination of the enlightenment and I think we often forget just how radical the Frankfurt School is. That it's an extraordinary, you know, this argument that that's that's inherent, indeed in some cases explicit, that we go from Hegel to Hitler. That argument is one of the Frankfurt School. Klager's, I think, is making it, but he's he's doing it, if you like, in a more intuitive, a more uh, aesthetic way. But but actually, more than I look at dialectic of enlightenment, it seems it seems, uh, and there's been a great doctoral thesis that's uh, not been published. That is available on the uh, on, on the internet, where there's been work done on comparing the approach of Klagers to 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 the critique of civilization, and that undertaken by the Frankfurt School. And I think that would be a very useful way of bridging these two areas and trying to say, well, if we're going if we're going to find the Frankfurt School of value, surely we can find something of value in Klagers there as well. Even though I'm bearing in mind that looking for value is itself more purposeful, willing, which one shouldn't do. It's interesting that you mentioned. Um... You know, we've mentioned time a lot here, and, and it's another thing, you know, when we're talking about Hegel there, of course, who's 
his temporality, I'm not as hot on Hegel as I am with other um, German idealists or uh, philosophers at the time, but his his temporality is is um, you know the the Hegelian dialectic, the 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 linear conception over 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 the top of Kant, and then the other one, the, you know, so the two primary temporal philosophies that we've got philosophies of time that we've got that are going around Klager's is the Hegelian dialectic but also we've got the eternal recurrence and it seems to me uh, Nietzsche's eternal eternal recurrence and it's you know it seems to me that Klager's is a is a it does the same thing he does with everything else which is sort of you know he, he takes a takes a very commonly understood and sort of almost collectively agreed upon definition and then steps back and goes it's kind of like that but it isn't really so with the with the recurrence Klager's does have this philosophy of cycles of time, except unlike Nietzsche's, which, as I understand it, is the uh, the amor fati, the um, the demon says that you have to live this life over and over and over again, and you should live your life in such a way that you would be happy at the thought of that. So it's the same life over and over again. And then the Hegelian dialectic is the uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, on and on and on and on. And Klager's has a bit of both. He has cyclicity in things die and things are born uh which is he comes at this from a chemical angle but he also has the uh, the hegel but it's a but he's the the way that it's strange is that he's celebrating life and birth and death these are both forms of vital life to be celebrated and it's for me what is difficult to find is what is his teleology what is the what is the end game for his system in what sense would one be successful if they arrived somewhere for Klagers? Uh, yeah, that's a, that, that's a big good question. Um, just just pick up some of the elements there. Uh, of course, one, I think Klager's first, uh, first book is actually a study of, of Nietzsche, uh, which he calls, again, intriguing title, he calls it The, the Psychological Achievements of Nietzsche. Uh, and of course, that's both a homage, but also a little bit of a, a critique as well, because, you know, it's the psychological rather than the philosophical achievements of, of nature which he's highlighting and he takes nature for task uh, on this idea of of eternal recurrence and and he doesn't like it at all again similar to heidegger who who, who sees nature as, as bringing in metaphysics through the uh, through, through the back door never never properly escaping Klager wants to critique it as well because he says uh, well we're talking about a recurrence of things uh, and yet we know that for nature you know there are no things there are only um, appearances. So, how can we how can we substantialize the world in this way by talking about the eternal recurrence of, of of all things? But I think what he's interested in is what our reactions meant to be to the eternal recurrence, as far as nature is concerned, and that is this amor fati. And I think Clark is much more interested in in amor fati as as an embrace precisely of that cyclicity that you've been talking about, which is to say the experiential dimension of, of, of birth or death. And again, I think we're going back to what we were talking about with regard to ecstasy and, and so on, that these are kind of extreme, ultimate experiences. They are they are limited experiences, Grenzerfahrungen and, and so on. Of course, experiences that, that each and every one of us is going to make, terrifyingly enough. And and, and that's Carter's point, is, is that it's the birth and death What's the name of the game? What's it all leading to? I think Clarke's argument is, well, it doesn't lead anywhere. And that's what one has, that's what one has to appreciate. And that's why he has, there's, there's, there's a great passage when he talks about, he, he says, um, uh, right at the end of uh, Der Geistals Wiedersacher der Seele, he talks about, he, he says, the moments of great experience. And he says, the moments of great experience either come or they do not come. And if they do come, then they also go again. No willing, no activity can compel them to come back. Only each single thing done perfectly grants the gift of a minute of happiness. That's not by a long way the highest or most profound happiness, but it's nevertheless a pure happiness. And moreover, the only one that it's given to the human being to obtain. Wow. I think unless you have anything that you believe we've missed out on i think that'll be a good place to end unless there's some key components that you think we've uh, we've overlooked i no, i think we've given it a good run yeah good run for our money thanks very much okay thanks very much paul